Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The big story of the last uh, 24 hours, or not quite 24 hours, is the elevated nuclear threat posed by North Korea and President Trump's reaction. In fact, I heard about this yesterday afternoon as I was preparing to do an interview on Fox Business where they had pitted me against another person who had voted for Trump but who was far more impressed uh, by Trump's economic accomplishments to date as president than I was. And, of course, you should watch uh, this I put the YouTube video up on my YouTube site. It's up on Facebook. But, I mean, this guy was just one lie after another. He said, well, under the president, we have this huge increase in the participation rate. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's 62.9. I think it is up from 62.8. But, you know, it's been, you know, ping-ponging between 62.7 and 70 for years. I mean, 62.9 is no better or no worse than what it was in general under Obama. And also the guy was talking about how we have all this wage growth now. No, we don't. Wages are certainly not growing any faster now than they were under Obama. In fact, I pointed out that the household, the income numbers came out last week and it was the slowest gain in personal income since November of last year. So this guy was just spouting off one lie after another about how great the economy was doing under under President Bush. I mean, look, even if you like President Bush, it's disingenuous. You see, it seems ridiculous to talk about how great the economy is doing now when it's not doing any better than it was under Obama. Now, you can maintain hope that things are going to get better. In fact, one of the points this guy kept making was that confidence was now much higher uh, than it was under under Obama, which is true. There are a lot of people that are hopeful and confident that things are going to get better. But they haven't gotten better yet. And I tried to point out on this show that it was a lot of false confidence, that people were going to be disappointed, that Trump had succeeded in raising expectations. That's why you had all this confidence, but that when those expectations were not met, people were going to be very disappointed. And this is a very dangerous plan. But of course, this guy, you know, was more of a mindless cheerleader for the president. In fact, I did get some critiques. I think if you look at some of the comments on the YouTube video or Facebook. People are saying, oh, I lost one person. Said, oh, I've lost respect for you now. You're just critical of the president. Look, would people respect me more if I just complimented him no matter what he did, if I just was a mindless supporter? Remember, there are a lot of people, a lot of Republicans that were talking about how great the economy was under George Bush. I knew it was a bubble. And not only was I criticizing Bush, I was criticizing Republicans for uh, trying to uh, cheerlead for Bush. 
I was doing this on television all the time, much more than I am now, because I knew that this would come back to bite Republicans. I said, look, this is a bubble that's going to pop if we pretend that we have a great economy and then it all falls apart. We're, we're not going to be in a position uh, to, uh, to offer any real advice. And this is going to you know, come back to haunt us, which is exactly what happened. It was because of all the mindless cheerleading for Bush that Obama was president for eight years. So I'm going to call it like I see it. And I am a defender of the president when I think he's doing right. And I'm a critic when I think he's doing wrong. I was a big defender of the president when he was a candidate. I mean, I don't think anybody defended him more than I did about the, you know, the locker talk stuff, uh, you know, in that RV. I mean, you go back and listen to some of my podcasts in defense of the president. I was defending him when hardly anybody else would. Right. So and I think that he's being criticized unfairly. And believe me, there's a lot of unfair criticism that's already being leveled on the president. My problem is why invite more? Why talk about economic victories that have not yet been won? Don't pretend everything is great just because you're president. Admit that things are not great, that you inherited a mess and you haven't had enough time to fix it yet. And try to explain to the people why the economy is so screwed up and what actually needs to be done instead of pretending that everything is great because you're president. And in fact, the same thing now is happening with the military. And this really makes me mad. I mean, first of all, President Trump, as soon as he found out the news from North Korea, right, his immediate reaction, unscripted, he said that, you know, the North Korea better not make any threats at the United States or they will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen before. Fire and fury that the world has never seen before? I mean, the world has seen Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So is he saying that what we're going to do to North Korea is going to be worse than what we did to Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I mean, there, obviously, you're just threatening, like, nuclear retaliation. I mean, I think that's, I don't know that I would go rush out and start saying, you know, hey, you do anything, you threaten. It wasn't even like you do something. You threaten us, and we're going to respond with force, fire, and fury, the likes of which the world has never seen before? I mean, that's that's I mean, that's a little over the top. But then today, Donald Trump tweeted out a a comment about the military. He wrote, my first order as president was to uh, renovate and modernize our nuclear arsenal. It is now far stronger and more powerful than ever before. Basically, Trump is now claiming credit for renovating and modernizing our nuclear arsenal. And now. He's saying it's stronger and more powerful than it was before he was elected. I don't think there has been any change to our nuclear arsenal uh, since Trump was elected. I mean, I don't think we've had the time to make the changes or to appropriate any money to make the changes. To the effect, to the extent that our arsenal is different today than it was a few years ago, those changes likely happened under President Obama, not under Trump. And whatever our nuclear arsenal is, It's certainly not stronger and more powerful than it was during the Cold War. I mean, we had massive, you know, uh, de-armament. I mean, we we, we got rid of a lot of our nuclear weapons. And we don't have as big a nuclear arsenal as we had when we had all these weapons aimed at the Soviet Union. And, you know, they had all these weapons aimed at us. We had all these treaties, right, to, you know, destroy a lot of these weapons, right? I mean, that was the whole purpose of it. So we would have fewer and fewer weapons. I don't think we've built our arsenal up in the last 
a few months that we've secretly built up an arsenal that's now bigger than it was uh, at the peak of the of the Cold War. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Again, I don't know why the president has to go out of his way to claim credit for things that haven't happened. I mean, I don't know, maybe he surveyed the nuclear arsenal. I mean, maybe he's done something, but I don't think we have built more weapons, modernized our weapons. I mean, again, it seems like the same type of boasting that he does about the economy. Oh, I'm president. Oh, the economy is great. Wages are soaring. You know, people are just piling into the workforce. It's not happening. And now he comes out and says, well, the nuclear arsenal is bigger than ever. It's more powerful than ever. Why? Why does he have to say these kind of things? Of course, as soon as I saw that tweet this morning, I you know, was critical of it on Facebook. I said, come on, wait a minute. Can this be true? And then sure enough, later on, I read a story on CBS News basically calling out the president for that statement, pointing out that this is ridiculous. He hasn't done anything to the nuclear arsenal. It's exactly the way it was when he inherited it uh, from Barack Obama. Why do this to yourself? Right. Why make statements that are so obviously and demonstrably false? You're just going to weaken your own credibility and you're going to strengthen your opponents and your critics. Why do that? But for some reason, the president feels that just because he's president, everything has to be the best. Everything has to be the greatest. And so since he's the commander in chief, now we have the greatest arsenal, the most powerful arsenal in the history of our country, which is just not true. Now, an interesting part of the market reaction to the escalated uh, military rhetoric was the failure of the U.S. dollar to rally. The dollar did not rally yesterday, and it was down a little bit today, although it did rally uh, earlier in the day on the back of a stronger-than-expected JOLTS report. And remember, this JOLTS report shows you the number of jobs openings, and it surged to an all-time record high. Of course, this JOLTS number has been making many, many records under President Obama. It was constantly strong, right? There are all these jobs that are supposedly available, and now there's more than ever before. You know, the problem with the job openings numbers in that JOLTS report is even though we have record numbers of jobs that are available, the problem is they just don't get filled. I mean, that has been consistent throughout Obama, and now I'm sure the same thing is going to happen under Trump. We have all these unfilled positions. Now, why are there so many jobs that employers can't fill? There's several reasons for that. One is the skills mismatch. I mean, there are a lot of people or a lot of employers who are looking uh, for certain types of workers, and they just can't find them. They want the type of skills that a lot of Americans don't have. And so the job openings keeps piling up as more and more people keep looking Our employers keep looking to hire workers that simply don't exist and aren't in the country. And, you know, if President Trump succeeds in slowing down legal immigration, in keeping people out that might fill these unfilled positions, then you're going to see that, you know, employer wish list getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The fact that there are so many jobs that nobody is qualified uh, to work is not a good sign. Why aren't we producing more qualified workers? I mean, they're too busy you know, getting advanced degrees in some type of liberal arts. Now, of course, there's another reason that so many jobs are unfilled, and that's because the pay is so low. People don't want them. You know, and that's another problem. You know, if we keep out a lot of the workers who would do uh, these low-paid jobs, then more and more of them are going to go unfilled. You see, a lot of Americans are on welfare and disability or unemployment or all sorts of government-assisted programs, and they would lose those benefits if they took a job. And so that's like a negative tax. I mean, one of the highest tax rates that
that people face is going from welfare to work. Because it's not so much the taxes that you pay on the money you earn. It's the benefits you give up when you take that job. And so in ways, many ways, that is the highest marginal tax rate, not the, you know, the 40 plus percent tax rate that a millionaire pays on his next million. But someone who has no income at all and takes a lousy $30,000 job, if that person gives up $25,000 worth of benefits to take a $30,000 job, what's that tax bracket? I mean, that's huge. I mean, there have been studies that show that in certain parts of the country, like here in Connecticut, I mean, in order for someone on welfare to break even on uh, on what they're going to lose by taking a job, I mean, they have to get sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year to get enough after tax income to equal all the income they gave up for not working. So you have a lot of jobs like that. It's hard to hire a lot of people for low paying jobs when being on welfare is far more lucrative. So that's another reason that, you know, you keep seeing. Uh, all these help wanted signs, right? All these jobs that are not getting filled. But then the third reason is part-time jobs. I mean, I've been going on about this for years. And even as a candidate, the president acknowledged it, is that we have so many companies that are hiring part-time workers now that don't hire full-time workers anymore. They only want part-time workers. And so they need a lot more workers. And so if you're hiring part-time people, and let's say each person you're hiring is working 20 hours instead of 40. Well, if you normally would hire 50 people, well, now you have to hire 100. So now you have 100 job openings instead of just 50. And of course, when you're trying to piece together a part-time workforce, maybe you're looking for shifts. You're, you're always hiring people because you always need somebody to fill in a, a missing hole. And so there's a lot of jobs out there. There's a lot of, you know that are being offered. And of course, a lot of people are reluctant to take some of those part-time jobs. They can't work them into their schedule or they're not paying enough to risk losing their welfare benefits. So the fact that we have this, so many part-time jobs offered at the expense of full-time jobs, artificially means that the number of jobs offered is higher. Now, maybe the total hours worked isn't higher because you add up all the hours that employers are looking to fill with all these part-time jobs. Maybe it's actually less than what they were doing when they were hiring full-time people. But the number of jobs available is going up even as the hours and pay for those jobs are going down. And so the dollar got a boost from that, but it didn't get a, an added boost from the news about, uh, about North Korea. And in fact, the dollar was actually down today uh, when you know, those fears were actually escalating overnight. The beneficiaries of the flight to quality were gold, uh, gold was up about 15 bucks today to a new two-month high. Uh, still, you know, to me, the reaction in gold is still relatively muted. I have, you know, I, we need to see a much bigger move up in the price of gold. But still, gold is reacting positively uh, to uh, this rhetoric. Also, the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc. In fact, the strongest currency today was the Swiss franc, which was up more than 1%. Remember, on a podcast, uh, I don't know, within the last week or two, I mentioned that I thought the Swiss franc was a good buy because a lot of traders were unwinding their long Swissy short euro trades because the euro was so strong. I said this is going to reverse at some point that the Swiss franc was a buy. And, of course, you know, we did have a lot of buying coming into the Swiss franc today. You know, also the Chinese yuan was very strong overnight. I mean, not as strong as the Swiss franc. But, you know, it was up about a half a percent. The Swiss franc was up a percent. But a half a percent in one day is a big move for the Chinese currency. And it has been moving up all year. We're now at a new high for the year. 
in the Chinese currency. And I've been talking about this. If you look at a chart, it looks like the U.S. dollar is going to continue to weaken. I think there's at least another 10% of short-term upside, which is, again, a huge move for the Chinese yuan. And there are a lot of uh, traders, a lot of hedge funds that are on the wrong side of this trade. At least they're on the wrong side of it now. They were on the right side for a while while the currency was weakening. But now that it's strengthening, they are on the wrong side. And I think they're going to be even more on the wrong side as uh, as this trend continues and accelerates uh, as ultimately the dollar uh, continues to weaken. I mean, the fact that the dollar was not able to get a bounce. Remember, we got a better than expected uh, non-farm payroll. We got this better than expected JOLTS report. And we got some military uh, uh, rhetoric. We've got some tensions escalating uh, with North Korea. Yet none of that was really able to lift the dollar off the floor. I mean, it has a tiny little uh, bounce, uh, but looking more like a dead count bounce than any kind of a reversal of the trend. So, you know, if the dollar is this weak and these bullish uh, factors aren't helping it, what does that tell you? And I've been saying this, if the dollar is this weak, when everybody expects more rate hikes, when everybody expects quantitative tightening, imagine how much weaker the dollar is going to be when the markets have to start discounting in rate cuts, when they have to discount in QE4, because all this stuff is coming, and yet the, the dollar traders don't haven't even figured that out yet, yet the dollar is still weakening. I want to try to switch gears and talk a little bit about tax reform, because this is the, the new issue that the Republicans are grappling with after their failure to repeal Obamacare or even replace it with something very similar to Obamacare, just with a Republican brand. Uh, the only thing that they can have, you know, to kind of campaign on in 2018 is tax reform. So they really need to get the tax reform done. And they're talking about it, but so far there's very little substance. There's just a lot of talk, but they haven't actually put down a plan. They do have a broad outline of principles, but they haven't really laid anything out. But one thing in particular that I wanted to talk about, which seems to be high on the agenda, is the elimination of the deduction for state and local taxes. They call it SALT, state and local tax deduction. And in general, that would be your state income taxes or your you know, state property taxes. And in some states that don't have a state income tax, you are allowed to deduct your sales tax, although obviously that's more of a complicated deduction to keep track of you know, all the sales tax that you pay. It's certainly a lot easier just to deduct your property taxes and your, your income taxes. And of course, those are generally much bigger numbers than just adding up a lot of the taxes that you pay. In fact, a lot of people, if you shop online, you're not even paying that much in the way of sales taxes. Uh, so I'm not sure that many people even claim the, uh, the sales tax deduction, but a lot of people, certainly in uh, the uh, the wealthier states on both coasts, especially the higher taxing states of California, New England, places like that, uh, people rely on those deductions. And so that is apparently one of the deductions that they want to axe. Now, of course, the president, nobody wants to get rid of the home mortgage deduction, but that is a much better deduction. Uh, to get rid of. I mean, that deduction does a lot more damage to the economy because the mortgage interest deduction is aimed at um, at altering behavior. It's meant to encourage people 
to buy rather than rent. Even if the free market, the better decision would be to rent, the government is trying to alter that decision by skewing it in favor of buying so that an individual who might otherwise rent and where it makes more economic sense to rent, to rent, the government wants to tilt the scale in favor of buying. And that's a mistake. I mean, whenever the government wants to alter the outcome that a free market would produce, you know you're going to create a problem, right? You always want to allow the market uh, to set prices, to allocate resources. So you want people making decisions that make sense economically, not decisions that make sense because of the tax code. Because if the tax code forces you to do something with your money that is not an optimal uh, uh, you know, decision or allocation based on the market, then it's going to produce a lower standard of living. And that is what happens with the mortgage interest deduction. Of course, because of the mortgage interest deduction, more people buy homes, but also homes are more expensive, you know, because built into the value of a house is the value of that tax deduction, the present value of the tax deduction. So, yes, you get a tax deduction when you use a mortgage to buy a house, but the value of that deduction is priced into the house that you're buying. So the real beneficiary of the mortgage interest deduction is not the person who buys the house and then gets to use the deduction because he's overpaying for the house. The real beneficiary is the seller, the person selling the house, because he gets to sell the tax benefit in addition to the house. So he gets to sell the house at a higher price than the house would sell for if it didn't come with a, a tax deduction. So, you know, rather than making home ownership more affordable, the deduction really has no impact. It makes houses more expensive and then just makes it cheaper for you to go into debt to pay the inflated price. I would rather have a lower price and people not be able to deduct their mortgage interest. But of course, not everybody can deduct their mortgage interest. There are people who don't itemize. And in fact, if they jack up the standard deduction, fewer people will uh, will itemize. And of course, to the extent that they lower the income tax, then the value of the tax break is lower. So there are a lot of ways that tax reform could diminish the value of that subsidy, even if it remains. But of course, the best thing to do economically would be to remove it completely. But of course, that would result in the housing stock uh, in general having a lower value, which of course, you know, would reflect on the, the net worth of homeowners. It would reflect on the value of the collateral uh, that is now standing behind a lot of mortgages, which is one of the reasons probably that they want to maintain that. But of course, it is politically popular because no matter what state you live in, if you have a home mortgage, then you're utilizing that deduction assuming that you're itemizing. And of course, if the mortgage is more than a million dollars, you can't deduct it, but no one cares about those people. That's you know, Those are the 1%, and there's not a lot of votes there. The, the middle class, upper middle class, utilize the deduction, and so it's hands off. But not so uh, with the state income tax deductions. And I think that's probably because, you know, obviously there's a lot of Democratic states that have very, very high taxes, very high income taxes and very high property taxes. And the argument in favor of eliminating that deduction, and I have some sympathy for the argument, but the bottom line is I don't buy it. The argument is why should the federal government subsidize state governments, right? Because if the state government wants to have a high income tax, then its citizens get to deduct that income tax from their federal taxes. And therefore, they don't feel the full burden 
of the tax because some of it is uh, offset on the federal government. And as a result of this, uh, taxpayers in high tax states are more receptive to those high taxes. They're more willing to pay them because they get a tax break uh, on, from the federal government. And if they couldn't deduct these taxes, there would be a bigger pushback from people in those states against this government spending. And while I have some sympathy for that argument, I don't buy it. And I do not believe, and I'm going to explain why, but I do not believe that this deduction should go. I think if we are going to have an income tax, and I would, I would just assume abolish the income tax completely, and then it's a non-issue, right? Once we abolish the income tax, that doesn't matter. You know, all the tax breaks go away because the tax goes away. But if we're going to have an income tax, we got to tax the actual income. If you earn $100,000, let's say, and let's say you live in a state that had a flat rate 10% income tax, which, of course, doesn't exist, but I just want to make the math simple. So somebody earns a $100,000 and they pay $10,000 in state taxes. Did they earn $100,000 or do they earn $90,000? I would say they earned $90,000 because that's all they got to keep, right? Because the state took $10,000 away. They only got $90,000. Now, when the federal government wants to tax you, if they want to tax you on $100,000, right? If they don't want to give you the deduction for your state income taxes, they're going to tax you on $10,000 worth of income that you didn't earn. You didn't earn $100,000. You only earned ninety. dollars The state took ten. dollars Right. The federal government can't tax you on income that you never earned. I don't even think that that's constitutional. I don't even think that that would fit, fit the definition of income, because if they're going to tax your income, they can't tax the money that didn't come in. You never got that state tax money. And chances are it was withheld from your pay before you ever saw it. And also, you know, people don't decide you don't spend your money on your state income tax. The government takes that money from you when you buy a house. That's spending your money. If you decide to buy a house and finance it with a mortgage, you use your income to buy a house. Nobody uses their income to pay their income tax. The income tax is taken from their income before they get it. So it reduces your income. That is a reduction of your income. And the government is taxing your income, right? Which is what you earned minus that, that state tax. That's not the same case with the mortgage deduction or even the charitable deduction. If people decide to make a donation to charity, they're donating some of their income that they already earned. The money that's given to the state government is not a donation. It's taken from you by force. But also it has to do with states' rights. The states have the rights. In fact, that's why if you go back to the origins of why even the first income taxes, the first federal income taxes exempted any in, any taxes you paid in the states is because they re respected the sovereignty of the states to tax the people first. And so the federal governments had to respect state tax laws. If you allow the federal government to ignore state taxes, I mean, theoretically, they can place an income tax that's so high, I mean, assuming that the states wanted to have a higher income tax, that you'd have nothing left. I mean, what if the state income tax was 60%, you know? And then the federal government says, well, we're gonna put a tax of 60%. Well, that's 120% of your income. That's more than everything, right? So. The, the federal government is only supposed to tax the income that you have left after the state puts their income tax. That was the very principle of the original deduction. That and the fact that they are taxing your income, which is the money that you actually earn, not the money that is paid in income tax. Now, you could potentially make an argument that, well, the, the, the property tax is different because that's not really reducing your income. 
that is basically a byproduct of your decision to, let's say, buy a piece of property. And now you're spending some of your income paying your property taxes. So I could see maybe making a situation where, okay, you can't get a deduction for your state property taxes, but you have to get a deduction for your state income taxes because your state income taxes directly reduce your income and therefore you have less income that's subject to tax. But I would just assume not allow the government uh, to double tax anything because you are diminishing the power of the state. So let's say, hey, if the state government is taxing money, then the federal government can't levy a tax on that tax. You know, they have to tax what's left over and that would preserve states' rights. But here's another thing that nobody even seems to think of in Congress. The states can get around this. This is how stupid it is. So let's say they pass a law that says that you you can't deduct your, your state income taxes from your federal income taxes. So let's go back to my example where a guy earns $100,000 and let's say his state income taxes is 10000 right? Well, under this scenario he's basically going to have to pay taxes on $10,000 that he never earned. Well, what if the state then just repeals the state income tax on wages and salaries, just eliminates it, and in its place imposes a payroll tax on employers so that instead of getting paid $100,000 right, and paying $10,000 in taxes, the payroll tax causes your employer to pay a, a le- I guess it would be an 11% payroll tax in order to make the numbers exact. So he can, your employer can give you $90,000, which is what you were going to get anyway after paying $10,000 in taxes. And he can pay a $10,000 payroll tax to the state, right? Now that payroll tax would be deductible uh, against your employer's income because it's a, it's an expense. It's a you know payroll expense. And so now you would get $90,000, And now you would pay federal income taxes on just $90,000. So that puts you right back in the same position as when you were getting $100,000 and paying $10,000 in deductible state income taxes. So basically, all the states would have to do is change the way they tax wages and salaries. Instead of taxing the individual who is earning their wages and salaries, they would put the tax on the employer who is paying the wages and salaries. And the net effect would be no change for the individual workers, they would have the exact same after-tax income, but it would deprive the federal government of all the extra money they think they're going to get by removing the deductibility of state income tax from your federal income tax. And that, of course, is the lion's share of the deduction, probably more so than the property tax. So the states can get around it. So the fact that they can even do that, they should just forget about this because any savings that they want to bank on from this supposed you know, elimination of this tax expenditure is going to be undone as the states react rationally to the new dynamic. And now they have to change where the tax falls from the employer to the employee. But of course, the employer is going to push the tax off on the employee as they always are. It's a pass-through. They simply pay the tax on behalf of their employee and deduct the tax from the wages that would otherwise be paid. But it is the net effect is going to be the same for the worker, uh, but it is going to undermine what the government is trying to achieve. You know, and I like the way they call it tax expenditures, like the government is spending money when they decide not to take it from us. Right. So anything they do to allow us to keep some of our money, they look at it as an expenditure or a tax expenditure. It's not an expenditure. An expenditure is when the government spends the money that it has. 
If it's taking my money, the fact that it could have taken more but doesn't doesn't count as them spending money, you know, spending money on me. You know, if if you're going to use that kind of language, then you have to assume that the federal government owns 100% of everybody's income, that we're all slaves, right? And whatever money the government allows us to keep counts as money they spent, right? It's not it's not that they take money from us, it's that they own everything that we earn and we should be grateful for whatever little morsels, you know, they allow us to keep. 